Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org, where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, April. Thank you. My name is April. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, I really appreciate your invitation. So I came into Overeaters Anonymous December 1975. I claim my abstinence of February 11, 1981. So if you can do the math, that means six years of not being abstinent, of trying. And that's probably the most powerful message I have. If I just sat down right now, I've lost between 50 and 60 pounds. 60 pounds right now, but sometimes it's 50. Um, So for those of you on the podcast, I'm 5'8", and currently I weigh about 133 pounds. So my message to you is, at least for me, this was the right place. And I just kept coming back because I had tried a lot of things that they weren't the right place for me. My background is that I, um, I grew up in Santa Monica. My mother's a concert pianist. My father was a farmer. We had 300 acres, we had 300 acres of walnuts in um, Northern California, and there was my sister and myself. So it was an avant-garde marriage in the 50s. They, um, basically, my father drove back and forth 500 miles every other month, and we spent every summer at the farm and we were raised in Santa Monica because her career depended upon being in Los Angeles. And that was a pretty forward-thinking family where the woman's career was as important as the man's. On the other hand, in terms of structure of a family, I was happy, and my sister and I were happy. We were raised well. But I think what we missed was when two people are together, they're inevitably strife. And what happened in our family was if there was strife, they just waited and left, you know. There was no point in working things out because they, they would, they just, in a few days he's going to be gone, so I'm not even going to bring it up. And I think I learned not to deal with things. I didn't see things get bad and then get resolved. I think I just felt underlying stuff that I didn't feel. A lot of us in Overeaters Anonymous are sponges of emotion, and I count myself among them. So what I find is that when I compulsively overeat, it's like turning down the volume. I don't even know why I do it, but I can tell you that it's like I can't, I get, well, my therapist calls it being flooded. I get flooded by, overwhelmed by, sometimes it's just literally loud noise, I mean, loud, you know, ambient sound, but mostly it's, I just pick up so much of stuff, some of it is unspoken, and I just shut down, or I, it's as if, I was not sexually abused ever, but it's what you read about when a, when a girl is sexually abused, and she cuts off her body, and then goes off in her mind, so for example, my therapist said she never, she has no idea of what my, my childhood was like, because I don't remember much, I was constantly <coughs> flooded, um, so, uh, so what that meant for my sister and me is that we were raised in San Monica schools and then we left immediately to go to the farm at the beginning of summer every year. And I honestly didn't really realize that San Monica was a beach town. You know? <laughs> I was a farm girl and I, I learned how to drive the tractor when I was six and the, um, the, the, the Jeep on the farm with the 
manual transmission, so it was you couldn't see my head above the window, so it looked like a ghost was riding it, and it was bumping along because I wasn't quite getting it into gear. Um, we had a lot of wonderful solitary time in nature. Um, it was there was a lot of freedom. Just you know, we'll see you back at lunchtime, basically. But there was also just a lot of solitary time with not a lot of friends around that area. And because we weren't connected to that community, and because my father was a pretty solitary man who hadn't himself made connections, it actually suited me. I think I'm a pretty um, happy and solitary. So who knows what's come first? You know the 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 turkey, I said the turkey or the egg, the chicken or the egg. I can tell you that I was a compulsive overeater since, I think, since birth. And what I remember is that we had a um, home orchard, which is just anything the farmer and his family want themselves. So we had trees. We had lots of different trees, but we also had a garden. And I remember consciously going, I can stuff myself because there'll still be enough for everyone else. So whatever fruit was was ripe during the summer, I ate a tremendous amount. My sister, on the other hand, didn't. That wasn't what was interesting to her. And I have read stuff about kids who tend to be alcoholics versus those who don't tend to be alcoholics. The ones who tend to be alcoholics don't necessarily get um, the, uh, what do you call it when you get drunk the next day, the Thank you. The hangover. <laughs> um, they don't necessarily have the unpleasant side effects. So when my sister ate too many apricots that weren't always ripe, she would get stomach aches. I didn't. So I didn't have the consequences. And so maybe that's brain wiring or body wiring or whatever. There were a lot of things at play. So there may have been that I was eating all those apricots because there were all this stuff that I didn't want to feel. And also there were new consequences to that action. The other thing that I did, which I imitated my mom, is we both bit our fingernails. And that's another thing that pulls, I think, that quiets my senses. And um, so my mom was extremely attractive, and so was, was my father. And they looked like a movie star couple. And I think that looks were among the most important values in our family. That combined with living in Los Angeles. So... Mom tended to be pretty disparaging about people who were not nice looking, and she was particularly fearful of being fat because she was one of 11 children. She was the youngest girl, and she got all of her attention by being talented in music and being pretty. So when she was in her early 20s, and she was sort of learning about her career and how to develop her career, she began to overeat and gain 25 pounds, and she's like 5'2", or 5'4". And um, she saw the attention drift away. She felt that the eyes were no longer on her, and it was very frightening. And so, I mean, she's a great storyteller. So I grew up with stories about how that was a really bad time in her life. It was only a year. And that she, they put her on, you know, amphetamines, basically. They, they, so she dropped the weight immediately, and she learned to eat carefully after that. So as a result, when my sister and I were lying in bed at night, and we would get hungry. You know, kids do sometimes. Mom, I want some water. Mom, I'm hungry. She would come in with a piece of celery. <laughs> and we weren't allowed bread at dinner. And, you know, there were a lot of things that, you know, might have been good, except I think I think they were good. And there was an underlying fear there. So when I left uh, home for um, college, right before college, I went to Europe. I earned my way to Europe 
and I was scared and there were pastries in Europe <laughs> and I just overdid I mean it was it was like you know it was like suddenly going you know the, the long story of Pinocchio where he goes into this other land with all these sweets that's where I was I was in this other land with all these sweets and again I was tamping down probably the fear of I was 18 but inside I was probably 12 and I was just terrified and then moving into college those dorms that food. <laughs> I'm not saying it was great, but I'm saying it was endless. So you could have as much as you want. And again, those feelings of I lived in a co-ed dorm. I didn't know anything about boys. Um, again, sort of muting those feelings of fear and sexuality. I think it probably exploded. I'm going to go back a little bit, you know, right around um, when I got my period. And I don't think that's uncommon with many of us um, at, at puberty where all those feelings and the body changes and everything back again to just wanting not to feel all that or being terrified of it. So I was at a university in Northern California, and I knew I began to see that I was gaining weight, and it was very scary. And um, I was a sophomore. No, I was a freshman. Um, yeah, I was... No, I was older than that. Anyways, my search began when I was younger. So my search began probably when I was a freshman, sophomore. I began looking for the answer. How can I have to handle this? I'm smart. I'm a scientist. I'm going to figure this out. So I went to um, my boyfriend, who was also a scientist, and we decided we would allocate me a certain amount of cheese, which would be my protein for the day. And he cut it out and figured out, like, my body weight and all that stuff. And, and then when he left, I ate all the cheese, right? You know? Um, you know, and so it was it sort of defied logic. And that was strange for me because I, I, I grew up Jewish, but I grew up sort of um, Jewish person who didn't believe in God. I was taught that uh, religion is the obedient of the people. We were very religious um, but not. <laughs> so we were we were religious culturally. We were we had a very strong ties, and we loved the songs, and we loved the celebrations, and we loved the meals and the traditions. But the, there was no connection to any kind of being spirituality spiritually. When I was in high school, that didn't work for me because I'm a basically very spiritual person. So um, my English teacher started telling us about the Greek gods and the Roman gods, and I was so excited about it that I went home and I created an altar in my closet so no one could see it. I didn't want to offend anybody. And I thought, well, who could I worship that would be appropriate in my family? And I decided I'd worship the goddess of agriculture, Ceres. So I had a little strand of wheat on the altar, and it, it just felt right. I didn't have a candle, but I had as many things as I could. And yet it was something I didn't share with anybody. It was a secret. It was just me and Ceres. Um, because I was searching. I was looking for something. I was already spiritual. I just didn't know how to plug into the world of spiritual people. Um, so in my search for recovery, my search for how do you fix this, it clearly wasn't a thinking thing. I couldn't think my way out of it. Then I went to a therapist thinking, well, maybe it's an emotional thing. And it helped to a degree. My first therapist on campus, um, you know, was in the 70s. They didn't really understand. I think they understand so much more now. So he said, 
oh, well, sometimes I eat, uh, you know, a whole carton of ice cream, too. It's not a big deal. And, and for him, it wasn't, because he probably was a normie. But for me, it was devastating. And it changed my life, and it changed how I thought about myself, and it changed how my body looked. So then I joined a behavior modification group with a group of people, women, who um, we committed that we would write down the things that we really like to do and then do those instead if we were hungry. So I like to take bubble baths and draw with magic markers, color magic markers. You know, that works to a point, you know. But it's so much easier to grab a sandwich instead of, you know, or whatever. And um, let's see. So then I decided I should go to a hypnotist because maybe there was some level of magic involved. So I took $75, which was a lot of money, a lot of money. I mean, this is the time when long-distance phone calls were a luxury, right? So $75 is a lot of money. And I drove all the way from, from where I was to, you know, it was like 100 miles away, to this hypnotherapist that I'd heard about and spent all day with him privately. I don't remember much. I thought he was creepy. But I do remember when I left, he gave me the mantra, now is the time. Now is the time. And I do I remember saying that to myself. Now is the time. Now is the time. And I believe that was around the winter of 1975. So I went home to Los Angeles that winter. And mom and my sister and my father and I were going to two parties uh, for the holidays. The first one was family. And so I walk into this family party. And I... Yeah, I guess I was a sophomore. And immediately people started commenting on how much weight I'd gained. It was probably only about 25 pounds, but it's a, it's a change. And I was, first of all, inside I was furious. How dare they comment on something as if I weren't noticing every minute of every day of every second and hating myself for it. Can they not? Can we talk about something else? And also humiliated and ashamed, you know, and then they'd come up my aunts and they would, they would squeeze my cheeks and go, you know, what a punum, what a face, what a cute little face. And I just, oh, it's just awful. And now I understand it to be that if my had dyed my hair green, people would have commented, we're humans. You know, I was different looking. But at the time it was very, um, it was really hard because I was already hard on myself. I already felt like a failure. By then, I probably was, yeah, I guess it was 25 pounds, but it felt like forever. It felt like so much weight. The next party we went to were people I didn't know very well. And my sister, who was, you know, her nickname was String Bean, was so skinny. She was very compassionate because I was crying in the car. And she said, these people... Sue and Bob are 300 pounds each. They're not going to notice. I guess it was 30 pounds I had gained. She said they're not going to notice 30 pounds. I thought, she's right, she's right. So we walked up to the steps to Sue and Bob's house, and Sue opened the door, and she said, Oh, April, looks like you've gained about 30 pounds. <laughs> because who's in another compulsive overeater would know exactly, right? You know, and that on top of all the things I was feeling about myself and the feeling I had at that past party and the humility of being in that car and weeping. I had never been in their house before, but I ran past her into what was the end of the line, which was their master bedroom, and I closed the door, and I flung myself on the bed, and I just started that, it's pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. It's that bottom. It's that I didn't want to go out of the room. There was no answer. I had tried everything. I was, I, I wanted a solution, and there wasn't one. So there was no point. So I'm never going to leave this room again. 
And Sue wasn't interested in Overeaters Anonymous for herself, but she was smart enough to know that someone else might have might be able to help me. So she sent in a young woman who I had met the year before who was still in her, let's see, I was probably 19 and she was probably 22. So she was older than me. She's an older woman. But she was someone I, I could identify with. And she had been in Overeaters Anonymous for a year. And she had lost about 90 pounds. And I saw it. You know, it was, I saw the difference from last year and this year. And I also noticed that she was carrying a cup around that had sparkling, clear stuff. And I assumed it was 7-Up or something. But it was water. You know, I don't know how people could just drink water. (laughs) So she came into the room, and she had that pamphlet from OA that had that list of, are you a compulsive overeater? Do you eat when nobody's around? Do you, you know, eat fine in front of people and then binge when they're gone? Do you save food? Do you blah, 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 all those things? Do you order for more than one person? You know, I can tell you that I had had ordered um, a, a candy diet solution in the mail, which at the time was called AIDS, and it was this little fudgy square, right? And you were supposed to eat one about a half an hour before a meal or something and drink some hot water with it, which was supposed to fill you up. Well, that would be fine if I ate out of hunger. But I wasn't eating out of hunger. I was eating, you know, for the Disneyland in my mouth and for all of the things that it did, right? For all, I want that because it's pretty and it looks good and I, it'll be happy or, and make me happy. So... um so she read me all those things, and I, you know, I can tell you that I, I did order for more than one person and then ordered two drinks. You know, if, if I was going in a drive-thru, I'd done all those tricks. And I have gone back into the trash can and, and found the food that I, I put, put in the trash. And she just talked to me about Overeaters Anonymous in a very kind way, and all I really did was look at her. Sometimes I just need the proof that it works by just looking at that person. I remember in my early days of, of being in this abstinence, my sponsor said, just turn sideways. You know, that will be useful. So she took me to my first meeting, which was at Crescent, he- Crescent Heights and Olympic. It was this triangular-shaped building. Hi. Um, and I remember it was smoky. In those days, everybody smoked. And I remember it was free. That was really important to me because I had gone to all these other things like the AIDS, like the therapist, like the hypnotherapist, and people I felt were taking advantage of me, and this didn't feel like that. And I also heard, but I can't tell you who the speaker was, that this man said he had lost 100 pounds and he had kept it off for 10 years. That was really important to me because I had lost 15 pounds and gained 20 and lost you know, 20 and gained 25 and I just needed to hear that a long-term solution was possible. So then I went back up to Northern California and found a group. So I was at Davis. I was at UC Davis. So I went back to Davis, and I found a group in Sacramento, which was going to any length for me. Because usually, for me at least, in the university, I just would stay in the university. And to drive, you know, 40 minutes to Sacramento at night away from my peers, not with someone, was a big deal. And I found a sponsor, and I didn't understand anything she said. You know, she would t- say that the steps, and I would one in, in one ear and out the other. But that's the way I learn. I just have to just keep hearing it. And I did begin abstaining immediately. But I didn't change. So I did the best I could, and I, I grabbed, they had at the time something called gray sheet and something called orange sheet. And gray sheet was, you know, three meals a day and no bread. And orange sheet was three meals a day with bread. And so I think I took gray sheet. 
And then I misread something. So my higher power was very wonderful to me. It's not there. But I read that you could have a glass of milk at night. It's not there, you know. And my glass of milk became mayo milk and ice and vanilla and, you know. And it kind of took, it brought, it took me through. It got me through. And I began to lose weight quickly. And I kept going to the meetings and not really hearing anything. And then at one point I stood up and I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If I ever need you again, I'll come back. Right? <laughs> right? So I, was, I didn't under, I wasn't changed. I wasn't changed. And um, so that was, I think I found, I'm getting my, my college years all mixed up, but I found Overdue's Anonymous in my senior year. So I was struggling a lot trying to find solutions. And I finally came to OA in my senior year, December um, December 1975, and in April of 75, just a few weeks before I was to graduate from college, my father dropped dead. He was 56, of a heart attack, and he was a young, spirited, slim, healthy-looking man, and we were, I mean, (coughs) to say we were in shock was was ridiculous. So, um, So I graduated, and my sister and my mom and I attempted to run the farm. It was um, probably not, it wasn't a bad thing for us to see how to do what he had done, but we weren't suited to it, and eventually we sold it. But during the the two years that we were running the farm, I found a group of Overdue's Anonymous in where our farm was, Yuba City, California, and I started going there. I just, you know, even though, and ah, ah, the day he died, I remember thinking, I could break my abstinence now and people would understand. So I did. Now, probably the other thing that was going on is this pain is so bad, I can't even fathom feeling it. That was probably really what was going on. But what I thought was I can get away with something. And so during that summer, I struggled and struggled but kept coming to meetings. I can't tell you anything more than my story is I kept coming back. You know, I keep, I want if that will help you, please use that. So my absence has changed a lot over the years. I came back finally to Los Angeles a couple of years later and immediately joined Overreach Anonymous. It was a wonderful way to connect to people. And I cried about my father almost every meeting for years. I don't know that I processed it except for just to keep crying. And I wrote inventories and I took sponsors and I began to slowly develop a relationship with a higher power of my choosing. So literally one guy, one of my sponsors, had me, well, what would a higher power be like if you could choose anybody? Well, someone really nice, someone who had a good sense of humor, someone really nice. You know, I just needed a kind spirit for me. And eventually what I've come to believe for myself is a lot of things. It's amorphous, but what it comes down to is if I imagine that I'm in a chalk circle. And in that chalk circle, I believe in God, and there's order. My life works better. And at any point, I know I could, I think I could drop, I could walk out of that chalk circle and not believe in God, and it would be as my life was before, which is, I'm in charge. I better fix this. I better figure it out. It doesn't work as well. So most days I choose to live in that circle, and I'm still defining and redefining what exactly it means to believe in God. 
I do know that there is something that helps me when I plug in. Sometimes I, that's meditation, sometimes that's exercise. Um, every morning, so let me just tell you really quickly um, what I have done in the past and what I do now. So I started out abstaining, eating three meals a day, um, and then eventually the thing that worked best for me, and this is what where I start counting my abstinence, is February 11, 1981, was... It was the the early days of Howe, which was very, very strict. It was basically Hitler was my sponsor, right? <laughs> and it was someone who said, you go to a meeting every day. And here I was. I was working in the corporate world. And so, like, incredibly busy and stressed. So you go to a meeting a day. And there weren't a lot of meetings, you know, in my area and at night. Um, oh, there were night meetings, but they weren't convenient. Um, you call me every day at 6 in the morning. If you call at 6.01, I don't answer the phone. You At the meeting a day, you get three phone numbers, but you can't get them on a list. You have to go up to three people. You write down your food, and you commit to me what your food is, and that does not change. And on and on. Oh, and then I wrote for 15 minutes every day. Thank you, 10 more minutes. I write, wrote my food down every day, um, and I wrote for 15 minutes every day. Sometimes she had assigned me a topic based on the issues I was going through, and sometimes not. She took me through the steps. It was very, and it was good for me, because had someone said, this is how we do it, and this is the only way to do it, when I first walked in, I would have run away. It wasn't good for me at the beginning. It wouldn't have worked. It was good for me because I'm a very nice person, and that's how I've gotten along in life. That in high school, teachers liked me. You know, I could always slide in by being a nice person. And with how, or with the basic Hitler philosophy, which is you either do it or you don't. It's like AA. You're either, you're, at, you're either sober or you're not. I couldn't slide. I had to just be, it begins with self-honesty. That's really what it is. It's self-honesty. So, for example, one night, it was late at night, I had committed that I was going to have two eggs for dinner. I, I assumed I'd be home making an omelet. I wasn't. I was in a very bad part of downtown Los Angeles in my corporate little skirt and my high heels. And I called my sponsor from a phone booth. Remember those? You know, you know, it was scary. And I thought, I'm being a good girl. I'm going to tell her I'm going to go to a market and get two ounces of cheese, which was, was the equivalent. And she said, all she said was, what was your commitment? And I said, two eggs, but I can't get the eggs. She said, what was your commitment? And I said, two eggs. And she was a waitress, and she said, do you see a cafe anywhere? And I said, well, yeah, a block away past the alcoholic dead bodies or whatever they are, you know. She said, okay, I work in a cafe. They'll always have hard-boiled eggs. Go buy two, two hard-boiled eggs. And I, like, hated her. And I hung up the phone, and I walked the blocks to this cafe, and I ordered the goddamn, pardon me, eggs, and they were like 25 cents each. It was nothing, right? And then I woke up the next morning transformed because it wasn't about the eggs. It was about keeping a promise more to myself than to her. How do I do that in hard times? I don't sponsor that way anymore, and I don't eat that way. But I'll tell you, when I was sponsoring that way, every one of my sponsees had a break through like that. I remember one girl, um, 
she had salmon. She was going to have salmon for lunch, dinner with her boyfriend, and it was not defrosted, and it was hard as a rock. And she called me to change, and I just kept saying, "What is your What is your commitment? What is your commitment?" And she hated me, and she hung up the phone. And the next day, she said, "And my boyfriend and I worked on it, and he took a hammer, and together he really helped me, and we got through, and we made that salmon. And thank you so much. And it, again, it's that transformative experience of I couldn't slide by just because I was nice. This is what I committed." So what has happened since? Well, I had, um, uh, after, I can't tell you how long, a couple of years of, of being on this program. Oh, so I, was a, I went to a meeting a day for 222 meetings, and then one day she released me, and I was so grateful. <laughs> um, you know, and then, then I, I went to as many meetings as, it worked for, as worked for me. But the point, of, of course, of asking for people for their phone numbers instead of on the list is that I had to make connections. I did, couldn't just – and if I was late to a meeting, it didn't count, which meant I couldn't sneak in and leave early. I just had to be present at the meeting. But when I got pregnant with my son – um, I couldn't even do just three meals a day. I had to do what my nutritionist recommended. And he was very comfortable with OA, and he said, you can do this. You can begin to trust your body now. Your body is asking for more. You can't survive on what you have had now. And it was like I had, I had dreams of falling off a cliff. It was that frightening. I thought I was going to go back. But, in fact, I had survived. And so here's what I do today. My, my abstinence is defined, I define my abstinence as no sugar, and by that I mean sugar is listed fifth or below when I have control over it. Do I go out for barbecue chicken sometimes? Yeah. I don't necessarily choose to order it, but if that's someone, something served me, I know that there's sugar in the barbecue sauce, and I just give it to God. Um, so I try not to be too manic, too crazy about it. So uh, no sugar, but also uh, yeah, no sugar, but also absolute honesty. Those are the only two things that define my abstinence. And by that I mean that every night I email my sponsor what I had, what I ate. I also count calories. That's not part of my absent commitment. And my calorie goal every day, I do a lot of exercises, 1,600 calories. But very often I'm 1,800 or 2,100, and it doesn't matter. It's my goal. I can just see what it what works and move on. And if I'm not a bad girl. The good thing is that I was able to tell her all the icky things I had, write it down, and send it off, and there's no guilt. And I try to do that before I go to sleep, no matter how freaking tired I am. Sometimes I'd send her, you know, a little bit the next day. But And in the morning when I wake up, I get down on my hands and knees, and I just say, Hi, God, here I am. Use me. Because I think we are all instruments. And more than anything, I want this food issue to get out of the way so I can be present and helpful in the world. And I'll just close with this one, um, what I was thinking about today. I've been thinking a lot about sponsorship. I sponsor about five people, but one of them only calls me once a year, so what is that, right? (laughs) Fine, good, whatever, you know. And um, two of them email me as intensely as I and email my sponsor, and then a couple of them sort of are flybys. They call sometimes, and whatever works for them. But one of them is quite needy, and uh, I, I've had to learn to set boundaries with sponsees. I used to think, in my early days of sponsoring, that I had to be able to be available at 2 in the morning, and I had to drop everything, and, and, and I was a doormat. You know. And there are some people who are way needy, and what their lesson is is they need to not be so needy. 
right? And that's their lesson at that moment. So, for example, today my husband and I were on a bike ride. We, I live in Manhattan Beach on the Strand. And there was a phone call, so I stopped to make sure it wasn't my 90-year-old mother, and it was one of the women I sponsor, and I didn't answer it. And that was healthy for me, because she'll be fine, and I was with my husband. So I need to know, know when, as an instrument, I'm an instrument for our marriage, or an instrument, because that's just as important in this world, if I can be useful. So I'll just close by saying that I have this really amazing husband who's supportive in every way, and I have a... 24-year-old son who has a great sense of humor and often tells his girlfriends about my experiences in OA, which I tell him he can and has changed other. It's so exciting. And I am totally transformed by my life in OA. Thank you. So we have two minutes for questions. Yes. The question is, What's your experience with step nine? So eight is listing all the people, and nine is talking to someone. Right? Thank you for helping me. Making amends. Okay, making direct amends. Um, making direct amends. When I wrote my my fourth step, I went to the people as if it were a checklist. I was pretty young in a way, and I didn't really care. I just wanted to freaking get it off my list. So I wasn't really listening to who, what their response was. And it must have been kind of annoying, I have to say. So one girl in particular in high school that, I, that we had been very close friends, and I, again, that memory thing, I don't remember what the situation, what the conflict is, but I hurt her. I don't know if it was her fault or my fault. So I just sort of just generically said, I'm sorry. I didn't really want to get into it. I didn't want to rehash it. And maybe that was healthy. I don't know. But it didn't really work. That wasn't. That was a very uncomfortable experience. Since then, she and I have cleared things up and we're good friends. Um, and what I, so I can say that I have done that very imperfectly. And maybe that's, there's a children's book called Ish. And a child learns that it's okay if his drawing looks house-ish or tree-ish or horse-ish. And it's something about imperfection. So I just have learned to be gentle myself that I will learn. What I do now, I do a lot of 10th steps, which is about as I hurt someone, I call them or tell them. And it's so much less painful than holding it, you know. And I, I have so much pride and ego, but if I, as soon as I puncture it, it's not so hard. And you're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you.